0: The text of the sermon is from Jonah 4, which we have just read. After the sermon, we will respond with the singing of hymn 55. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, perhaps you've heard Handel's powerful coronation anthem, Zadok the Priest. If you're not familiar with that kind of music, you can substitute U2's classic song, Where the Streets Have No Name. In both songs, the composers created an air of expectancy with an introduction that lasts over a minute. The tension slowly builds up, until it explodes into the main body of the song. With Handel, the strings pick up speed, then slow down again, then speed up, pick up volume, and when the singers finally start with the rest of the orchestra, I'll never forget the first time that I heard it. Goosebumps all over. With you 2 it's slightly different. First you hear the keyboard, then the guitars, then the bass and drums, all picking up speed till finally the whole thing takes off with the singing with powerful effect. These two musical examples give us a good picture of the biblical mission song. The Old Testament forms the introduction. Throughout the Old Testament, there's an air of expectancy created by certain events and phrases. The tension builds slowly, faster at other times, then the volume builds, till finally Jesus Christ comes into the picture. After his ascension into heaven, the music explodes into the main body. God's people are empowered by the Spirit to go out into all the world with the good news of Christ to make disciples of all the nations. So where does the book of Jonah fit in this song? Obviously, we're still in the introduction. We're in a time when some of the themes of the song are being heard, but it's all in a preliminary way. The tension is building, expectancy is mounting. Readers ask themselves, if God works this way in the Old Covenant, what does that say for the time when the new covenant comes. With Jonah 4 this morning, we'll hear one of the important themes announced in the introduction to the Song of Missions. The Ninevites have repented, God has relented, now Jonah is stewing. God uses this opportunity to teach his people an important lesson, one that also has consequences for how we view the mission of the church today. The lesson has to do with how God relates to the work of his hands. So I preach to you God's word with this theme. God is right to care about his creation. And we'll consider two parts First one, Jonah's intense anger at God, and secondly, God's powerful response to Jonah. So the first one is God's is Jonah's intense anger at God. First one of chapter 4 tells us that Jonah had the deepest possible anger at what happened in the previous chapter. When God did not bring the destruction threatened through Jonah, Jonah flew into an intense rage. Now, Jonah was not the first Old Testament figure to have these feelings about a situation in which God so clearly had a hand. For example, in the first pages of Genesis, Cain became angry because his brother's offering was acceptable to God and his was not. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel became distressed or angry that God had rejected Saul. But in all those other instances, it was typically God's justice that people couldn't handle. With Jonah, it is different. Jonah is the first Old Testament figure who gets angry with God over what most people would see as God's more positive attributes. Look at what Jonah says in verse 2. He speaks to Yahweh, to the Lord, and says, this is exactly the reason why I took off in the beginning. I know who you are. I know what you're like. Jonah's fury was fueled by God's character. Jonah knew that God was gracious and compassionate. All these words used to describe God are used only to describe God in the Old Testament. They're never used to speak about people. So God was gracious and compassionate in a way that's not typically found among people. The word used for gracious is also found in Exodus 22, where God says that he hears the pitiful cry of the person who is friendless and cold because his only coat has been taken from him in pledge against his debt. God says, if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Yahweh well, is just like a father or a mother who cares deeply for their child. This is what Jonah knew God to be like. He also knew God to be slow to anger. This means that God does not have a quick temper. On the positive side, it means that God has a huge measure of patience and Forbearance. And not only that, but he is abounding in steadfast love. This points to the kind of love that spouses should have for one another. It's the kind of committed love which is going to stick it out through thick and thin. And that's the kind of love that God has in abundance. That's the kind of love that Jonah has a hard time accepting. Jonah could not handle a God who relented at sending destruction when the Ninevites repented. In fact, Jonah says in verse 3 that he would sooner die than live and see God relating to Nineveh in this manner. Jonah desires death because he cannot stand the idea of God giving life. In this, you can see that Jonah's problem was not so much with Nineveh as it was with God. Jonah wanted God to be different, at least in so far as he relates to the Ninevites. Rather than be gracious, Jonah wanted God to deliver justice. Rather than be compassionate, Jonah wanted God to be cruel. Rather than be slow to anger, Jonah wanted God to blow his top. And the sooner, the better. Rather than abounding in love, Jonah wanted to see God's anger at sin expressed with the destruction of Nineveh. And so what happened to the repentant prophet of chapter 2? What happened to the prophet who said that he remembered Yahweh? That's another way of saying that he came back to the ways of living in covenant faithfulness. And now... Here, the prophet is back at the point of shaking his fist at God. What happened? The answer can only be found with the fickle character of mankind. One minute we're saying we believe one thing about God, and the next minute we're acting as if we really don't believe it. Jonah was no different. He was back to angrily kicking against the goats. And what was all this saying to the people of God? The Jews who first read this book would be confronted with a prophet becoming so angry that he wants to die. He's angry because God does not fit his box. Jonah wants a God who only shows mercy and compassion to one people, one tiny little part of his creation. This was a not-so-subtle message to the people of God. God's concerns go beyond your Borders. Not accepting this had serious consequences. If you believe that God's concerns are only within the borders of the Holy Land, this sure changes God on two counts. First of all, God's sovereignty. Who are you to impose your restrictions on God? Second of all, God's glory. Who are you to say that God cannot receive the glory he deserves from all his creation? The net purpose of this prophetic teaching was to transform the people of God. It was to transform them in their thinking about God and their neighbor. It was to prepare them for the main body of the song when God would bring every tribe, tongue and nation into his kingdom. Jonah's role in this purpose is to provide a vivid contrast also with his intense anger God uses Jonah to teach his people to believe him as he has revealed himself. In this way, Jonah was a negative example. But several hundred years later, God gave a positive example with another prophet. Christ shared the grace and compassion of the Father with all. He rejoiced to see people turn to God in the course of his earthly life, He also occasionally ministered to Gentiles. Think of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. She begged the Lord to drive the demon out of her daughter after some discussion, and when he saw her faith, the Lord had compassion and did this for her. This is a picture of God's character. The Lord Jesus shares and delights in the attributes of God. He shares and delights in God's mercy, compassion, and steadfast love. When you think about it, when you think that he himself is the Son of God, a person of the Trinity, how could he do otherwise? And yes, the Lord Jesus also became angry, but he never became angry with his Father. His anger was directed at the self-righteous and the hypocrites among the people of God, Because of his divine union with the Father, the Lord Jesus shared the concerns of the Father. Listen to what he said in John 14, verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. The concerns of the Father were the concerns of the Son, And one of God's chief concerns at that time, and in our time, is his glory among the nations. As Christian prophets today, our concerns are to be the concerns of our chief prophet and teacher. This is part of what the Lord Jesus meant when he said in John 14, verse 20, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Through faith, we have union with Christ, and through union with Christ, we have union with the Father. That helps us in taking the message of our text into our own lives. Because of who we are in Christ, we desire to be reflections of Christ's image. We delight in God as He shows Himself to us. We delight in God showing care and compassion for the nations, for all his creation. In other words, when God sends the church out into the world to make disciples, this isn't a burden for us, but a joy. We're excited and enthusiastic that our God is like this. He doesn't fence in his blessings, but wants to spread them far and wide for his glory among all. So we will never minimize the mission of the church as if it's just gravy, something we do if we happen to have a little extra time or money left over. Because God is who he is, because Christ is who he is, and because we are in Christ, mission is an inescapable part of what the church is about. This means that we can never make a false dilemma between missions and work done inside the church. The two belong together. God wants his people to be built up and strengthened inside. But God's character is that he also desires his glory to be magnified among the nations. God cares about what he has created, and his will is that what he has created should be worshiping him. God taught this lesson to Jonah in a powerful way. Let's hear about that in our second point this morning, which is God's powerful response. To Jonah. Through both words and actions, God's response to Jonah comes in several stages. The first stage has God speaking in verse 4. God says to Jonah, Is it good and right for you to be angry? The question is rhetorical. Both the readers and Jonah know what the answer to this question is. But notice that Jonah doesn't give an answer with his words instead it is his actions that speak for him Jonah goes off to the east side of the city and he builds himself a crude hut this hut would likely have been built with branches and any green leaves that were available Jonah built this hut and then he sat down to see what would happen Even though he knew that Nineveh had repented, even though he knew that God had expressed his compassion for Nineveh, Jonah still held out hope that the repentance was short-lived and the program of God's judgment would still play out in front of him. Imagine a preacher hoping against hope that his preaching would not be effective for salvation. It's so pathetic You have to laugh at it. Well, God is not finished with this anti-preacher, this anti-prophet. God sends the second stage of his reply with actions. Verse 6 relates that God provided or appointed a vine to grow over Jonah and give him shade. Just as in chapter 1 where God appointed the winds and the great sea creature... So here God in his sovereign providence appoints some kind of plant, most likely a castor oil plant. Such a plant grows very fast and has very large leaves that would provide the shade that a crude hut wouldn't give. Verse six tells us that this plant or vine was appointed by God to ease Jonah's discomfort. The end result was that Jonah had some joy in his life again Jonah was happy about something even if he couldn't be happy about God and Nineveh this lasted for all of one day and then God appointed another part of his creation this time a worm probably some kind of weevil or weevil pupa to chew on the vine the result was that the vine withered The leaves shriveled up, no more shade. Then in verse 8, we find that God added to Jonah's chastisement by giving a powerful hot wind from the east. God directed the weather so that it was blue skies and hot wind. And so Jonah felt a heat stroke coming on. One day Jonah had joy, and the next day he was wanting to die again. Notice that every word that comes out of Jonah's mouth in this chapter has to do with death. Jonah has a profound death wish. He's gone up and down, and now he's down again, longing for the grave. God has given this to Jonah to chastise him and lead him to repentance. Then God speaks again to Jonah. Is it good and right for you to be angry about the vine? This time, Jonah replies with words, and he asserts himself violently. I am right. I am angry enough to die. Literally, he says, I am angry to death. And note well, these are Jonah's last words in the book. Jonah's last word is literally death. God comes with his last words, the climax of the entire book. Jonah did not create the vine. Jonah did not take care of it or make it grow. Its lifespan was one day. Yet, Jonah cared about it. He cared about it because of the pleasure it gave him. Jonah did nothing for it, but then there was Nineveh. God had created the people and the animals of this great city. God had providentially led the lives of all 120,000 people and the animals as well. All these people who don't know their right hands from their left, in other words, people too ignorant to take care of themselves. God took care of each one of them. If Jonah cared for the plant, which was so insignificant, why wouldn't God care for Nineveh? Shouldn't God be concerned about this great city? God cares about it because it pleased him when the people turned from wickedness. God desired to see the people of Nineveh live and glorify their creator. And so when God says, should I not be concerned about the great city, that is a last word about life. God's concern means life for the people and animals of Nineveh. Jonah wanted death, but God wanted life. Notice that the book ends with that lingering question Should I not be concerned? about that great city? We're not told what Jonah's response was to God's question, though many interpreters have guessed what he might have said. Many children's Bibles, too. They will put an answer or an implied answer in Jonah's mouth. But all of that dulls the point. The point is that God's people of all ages have to find the answer in the revelation of who God is in Scripture. Think of what God says to Moses in Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul later quotes those words in Romans 9 to make a point about God's good pleasure and sovereign choice. God is the one who sovereignly decides to send a message of judgment. God is the one who sovereignly works repentance and faith. God is the one who sovereignly shows compassion and mercy upon the repentant. God is right to care about what he has created, both his physical creation and his spiritual recreation. Now remember that all of this was in the Old Testament. God was like this in the Old Testament, and this was to point ahead to the full picture of how he lavishes his grace upon the nations in Christ In the New Testament, today we want to be God's instruments to that end. You see, the whole issue of the book of Jonah is, what is God like? And knowing what God is like, how should our lives be transformed accordingly? In Christ, we know the beautiful answer to those questions, because it is in Christ that God shows himself to be abundant life for those who repent and believe the gospel. It's God's people who are in Christ by faith who the Spirit uses to bring that gospel. So today we have a song that has exploded into full melody with nearly all the lyrics. With Christ's first coming, the time of expectancy was over, but not entirely. There's still a measure of expectancy as we wait for the brilliant conclusion of the song. It promises to be the most spectacular part of all. God is still working on it because God is still concerned for a great city, the great city of the new Jerusalem. As time moves on, God is building that glorious city through his people and the spreading of the gospel. The enemy tries to destroy that work, but his efforts are all in vain. One by one, citizens are brought in behind the fortified walls that no one can breach. At the end of the age, God's care for his creation will be gloriously vindicated. Through his Son, through his Spirit, God will bring more glory to himself when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven. How will God bring that day to pass except through the mission of the church. In the literal sense of the word, we may not all be musically gifted, but in this spiritual orchestra, we all have a part to play. We all have a line to sing. The new Jerusalem, which we eagerly wait for, it's not going to come down from heaven till all the elect of God have been gathered in. Christ's Church gathering work will continue through us till the day we hear these words from the throne, words spoken to people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Now, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Amen.